You know, being a parent myself, I don't know that we want to even think about those things, right? So it's the last thing that a parent wants to think about, that their kid might be sick in any way. Kids have a need to protect us, and they have a need to make us happy. And if they feel like they're not being happy, and or they're telling us things that may make us unhappy, they, they won't. Welcome to the Merck Manual's Medical Myths Podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Joe McIntyre, and today we're going to take a short break from myths to cover an extremely important topic, children's mental health. I'm fortunate to welcome a very esteemed guest to talk about it with me in Dr. Josephine Elia. Dr. Elia is a psychiatrist with a specialty in child and adolescent psychiatry at Nemours AI DuPont Hospital for Children in Delaware. Dr. Elia, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Now, on this episode, we'll talk about topics that help parents to identify and address signs of mental health challenges in children, and also offer actionable advice for how to help children understand and process these challenges, including when to see a medical professional. Now, Dr. Elia, let's start off with a fairly simple question, perhaps. Children are often said to be resilient or often more resilient than adults. Is that actually true when it comes to their mental health? Well, resilience, uh, it's the ability to bounce back, right? So we can look at brain development to help us answer this. The brain isn't fully developed until the mid-20s, and it develops in sections. The last part of the brain to mature is the frontal cortex, the part of the brain that is needed for planning, organizing, reasoning, and impulse control. Now, adults are able to process and organize information, judge risky behaviors, factor in consequences of their actions. And all of these tasks are done in the frontal cortex. And it's one of the reasons the rates of car accidents are higher in teens and don't actually come down to the adult rates until about age 25. Now, in addition to the fact that the brain develops in different stages, the brain cells are also developing connections and they form large networks of connections so that each of the brain cells can communicate with one another and talk to one another. These connections, however, are not static, but are constantly adapting and changing. New connections are formed, other ones are broken, and then this allows for a healthy brain function to happen. And it's what gives the brain, you know, some of this resilience, being able to adapt to one circumstance versus another. These connections are in constant change and don't fully form until, you know, adolescence or late adolescence. And when they're not working well, 
then it's very difficult to adapt to new situations or to be resilient when there's some event that has caused some regression. Then the other thing that plays a big factor is life experiences. A child who's living in a home where there's adequate food, heat, where the home is in a neighborhood that is safe and parents are healthy and can provide warmth and care, these children are able to manage and bounce back from stressful events much easier and quicker than children living in adverse situations without an adult that can model and uh, can help them process whatever might be going on. Therefore, to answer your question in a longabout way, <laughs> both from a brain perspective, from the maturation, from the connections between the different brain cells, as well as from an environmental perspective, children do not have the capacity of an adult brain to have that level of resiliency that an adult may have. Now, do you often feel, Dr. Elia, that signs of mental health struggles are more often ignored in children uh, because it's often easy to dismiss it as a sign as a kid being a kid or a kid being difficult or fussy or whatever it may be? So that, that's a really, really important point. I don't know that these signs that we may label as difficult or fussy or one of my least favorite description on cooperative, I don't know that they're ignored necessarily because these things cause a lot of external trouble in a sense. However, what I would say that we're often seeing is that they're often misinterpreted or misdiagnosed. I'll give you an example of the kids that we've been treating. Obviously, we're not going to give any identifying information, but they reflect many cases that we see. It was an 11-year-old boy admitted to our hospital, and the reason he was admitted was because he needed to continuously go to the bathroom to pee, to urinate. The reason we were called, our consult team was called, was because staff was having a difficult time managing him. And, you know, he became the difficult kid on the unit uh, because he was running constantly from his room, running to the bathroom. And if staff tried to stop him, he would get very aggressive. It, it was very clear when we saw him that he really did not need to void and to pee because he had just voided. So when we saw him, and, and, and saw him compulsively trying to run in uh, to the bathroom, we obtained a thorough history from the, the parents and discovered that around Thanksgiving, about, about three weeks, three to four weeks earlier, this 11-year-old who had been functioning optimally and going to regular school had developed a fever, a cough, and an ear infection. A week later, his behavior acutely changed, abruptly changed. He began having periods where he had difficulty talking. He was having staring episodes, had become this difficult oppositional fussy child, 
and oddly was curling up with a blanket and wanting to sleep on the on the dog uh, cushion rather than going to sleep in his own bed. Anyway, these behaviors, again, this, this looked like an oppositional kid and even an aggressive kid, but clearly that was not the case. We checked some blood work and I identified some antibodies that were very high that were related to a strep infection. We also got a brain scan where there was some swelling in some of the midbrain regions. And we know that there's some infections that can cause, can cause some brain changes that can bring out these behaviors. So we started treatment quickly. The treatment that was really effective was plasmapheresis, where we basically you know, cleared the blood from all of these antibodies. And within two weeks, the brain swelling had stopped. The boy's behavior returned to normal and he was discharged uh, to home at his baseline behavior and went to school the next day. Whether you're a parent or a seasoned professional, a medical student or a caregiver, the Merck Manuals has the right medical information in the best format. And it's always free, easy to access, and readily available for you. Now, what questions should parents ask, either of you, a psychiatrist, or their pediatrician, to gain a better understanding of their child's mental health? You know, being a parent myself, I don't know that we want to even think about those things, right? So it's the last thing that a parent wants to think about, that their kid might be sick in any way. And I think things are a little bit better now than they may have been in the past with, you know, all the information that's out there. But in general, during the routine pediatric visits, it's kind of critical for there to be a give and take conversation uh, with a parent and, and the pediatrician or whatever clinician is working with the family so that if there's issues, they can be discussed. And I think as, as physicians, you know, as clinicians, we have learned that we need to do a better job in even asking the questions ourselves. So I, an example I can give you is that one of the things that are being implemented across all like healthcare institutions at this point is that we have to screen for kids if they're, if they're having any thoughts of wanting to hurt, hurt themselves. Um, and in the past, we never even you know, imagined doing such a thing. And some parents can get upset about that when we do that screening and understandably so. But the reason these are done is because often, if you don't ask the question, if you don't bring it uh, to the table, then it's something that they may not be able to talk about or bring it out themselves. Likewise, in our primary care offices, our pediatricians are doing screens for depression, for anxiety. I think we're doing a little bit of a better job in helping parents um, with earlier identification and also putting things on the table. With regards to depression, 
parents often are not the first ones to, to notice these symptoms, not because they're not the, the, the symptoms aren't there, but we do not, and again, as a parent, we do not want to think that our kid's not happy. And I think in part, we need to not see it so clearly. So even when we do studies, you know, to look for either epidemiological studies or treatment studies, we know that the parents are not the best reporters. <laughs> and then here in the hospital, when we have a kid who does come in and, and they, you know, they've hurt themselves, uh, the parents are always devastated and we try to, to, uh, to comfort them by letting them know that this is typical. Often the parent is not the first one to be aware. Kids have a need to protect us and they have a need to make us happy. And if they feel like they're not being happy and, or they're telling us things that may make us unhappy, they, they won't. So our institutions are beginning to do a little bit of a better job in at least trying to screen for some of these. Now, you do mention anxiety and depression uh, and how difficult it is for parents often to identify that. What are some of the signs and symptoms that children may display when they're suffering from a mental illness like anxiety or depression? Some symptoms of, of anxiety or depression they can differ during the different developmental stages. So for anxiety, when kids are little, the main thing that you see is separation anxiety. And separation anxiety at certain developmental stages is totally normal, right? So when a kid around 18 months of age doesn't want to leave your side and screams their head off when you're leaving them, even if it's to go to the downstairs or whatever, that's very normal. Likewise, when the, the first day of kindergarten, I think teachers have a lot of experience you know, with us parents <laughs> trying to drop the kids off. And sometimes the anxiety is not on, on the part of the kid, it's on the part of us. <laughs> because we can't separate from the child. But in a healthy kid, once they're, you know, you drop them off at the school and teachers will tell us the minute they walk in the class, they have forgotten about you. <laughs> and they don't think about you for the rest of the day. <laughs> so when does it become more problematic? So it becomes more problematic when a kid cannot adapt. And when they're experiencing, you know, the severe anxiety after they walked in the classroom, after they seen the teacher and their classmates. And then in the, the really severe cases is where kids uh, avoid uh, school and can't even get to school. And then as kids get older, some of the other anxiety disorders can come out. You can get more of the social anxiety where, you know, the kid is a chatterbox at home and talks, you know, all the time, but the minute they come out of the comfort zone of home, they can't talk anymore. They become mute, essentially. Uh, in the classroom, they cannot raise their hand, even, you know, when they know the answers. In groups, they can't talk. At the lunch table, they're fearful of eating in front of the other kids. And then, you know, they get into the avoidance of, of participating in activities with others. 
Now, you know, there's some things that can get confusing. So we'll have a kid that is not able to talk, you know, in the classroom, but they have the lead in the school play so that in, in situations where they may be in large groups, but it, there's no personal real, you know, connection, they can do quite well. And I think of, you know, what I should say, all of us have a certain level of anxiety. So anxiety itself is not bad. It's actually, you know, a quality that helps us. It helps us to prepare for, for events, right? It helps us to prepare for exams. It helps us to, um, you know, to relate to each other in, in, in positive ways. So it's really when we get to some of the extreme ranges that it can cause difficulties. And then as, as kids get older, we don't see as much separation anxiety, but we see more of the generalized anxiety where some kids become fearful of everything and everything is a catastrophic event, even things that they can't control. And again, all of us have some degree of that, but it's when it becomes extreme, when it gets into avoidance behaviors, when it interferes with doing all the things that are necessary, you know, to, to get through the day. And the good news is that there's treatments for anxiety. There's all the, the cognitive behavioral therapy treatments. There's the breathing exercises. There's all sorts of, of activities that, can, that one can do to help to decrease these. And then when these are not enough, uh, we have medicines that can be very helpful and that are very safe. So if the symptoms are severe, treatment can make a big difference. Dr. Eli, I have a few more questions that I want to throw your way. So if we can, I'm going to ask that we stop here and we'll take an even deeper look into the topic of children's mental health on a second episode. In the meantime, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in to the Merck Manual's Medical Myths podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen in. Of course, be sure to check out part two of our discussion with Dr. Elia. Until then, I'll leave our listeners with the message we always do with the Merck Manuals. Medical knowledge is power. Pass it on. <laughs>